Podcast New York. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios, it's another all-new Dueling Decades. The adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back. I am Mark James, and this week we bring you a best of worst duel where I will be competing with June of 1970 alongside the other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off is a man who insists that the cookie stand is not part of the food court. Say hello to Man Crush. That's right. It's not. It's mid-mall snacking, man. Yeah, I got, uh, and actually that fits in where I am right now because I have June 1990 and this is the best of the worst so we're going to bring you the worst picks but our judge is going to pick the best of the worst so that should be pretty fun and one last thing uh joe reminded me to say this if you're coming into the uh, the live right now go ahead and hit like subscribe do all that stuff now and it actually helps us out i guess we didn't we never remind anybody <laughs> to do this so please do that also joining us on the panel and looking for big money and no whammies, it's the incomparable Mike Ranger. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike Ranger. Uh, you know, I, I always think I'm going to have something really cool to say, and I, I don't have anything cool to say. I'm just not cool. I'm, I'm wearing a, a rad shirt. It's <laughs> nice. I like it. Yeah. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. This week's guest judge is the actor you know and love from films such as Children of the Corn, The Burbs, and Can't Buy Me Love. And you can see him in the new film, Queen Bees, alongside another all-star cast. All rise for the multi-talented judge, Courtney Gaines. What's up, y'all? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie after all five rounds, we'll go to a final wild card round. Remember, duelers, to review the show, like, subscribe, and play along at home. It's time for more Dueling Decades. All right, let's pass it right over to Courtney Gaines for the coin toss to see who goes first this week. Okay, so that would be heads, and uh, this would be tails. Who's calling it? All right, this week it'll be between Man Crush and Mike Ranger. Mike Ranger, why don't you have the honors? Oh, I think I'll go with a little bit of heads. Here we go. Tails, my friend. All right, Man Crush, you win the coin toss, and you get to select our first category. All right. Uh, let's start things off with news this week. How's that? 
Joe, I'm sorry. I don't know if we're waiting for the hand signals or not. Or we're not waiting for hand signals, so we're just going to go. So let's go to uh, June 22nd of 1990. And this one, this is sort of a reverse of what we've just been doing for the last 18 months. Instead of states mandating, like, wearing a mask, Florida, of all places, bans a particular piece of clothing from being worn. And apparently this is still a law today. Uh, at least that's what I was able to find online. It looked like in the last update I found from 2018, this is still a thing. So if anyone is in Florida and you could let us know for sure, that would be great. I know uh, Mark's been dying to get down to the, uh, the sun coast and show his off. Uh, but this is a, uh, an article titled unsuitable and it was written by Susan Boletto of the Miami Herald. And here's a little abridged version of that article for those who haven't been to the beach lately, or at least for the past couple of years, the thong is a Brazilian swimsuit and the word swimsuit is being used advisedly. The thong is basically a couple of strips of material, only two inches wide at the widest, barely covering the buttocks. It is for the most part, a female concern. Although a few men wear the manly version. God, it's just <laughs> frightening. The uh, Florida cabinet approved new restrictions last week that will make the risque swimsuits just as illegal as nude sunbathing on about 30 state-owned miles of Florida's 780 miles of beaches. The new rule takes effect Friday, just in time for the weekend. The basic idea from what the, uh, the cabinet has is simple. On state-owned beaches where families with kids come for a day of fun in the sun and picnic lunches, you don't want a few half-naked people ruining things for everyone. The people being asked to cover up can still enjoy everything the beach has to offer. And like simple ideas everywhere, it has a neatly divided all beachgoers. All right. That's all I'm going to say about the article. But listen, all I'm saying is this. If gross ass dudes like us can run around with some grape smugglers at the beach, then women should be allowed to wear a thong bikini at the beach. Right. I mean, I, us, we're worse and look we all know what we look like in one or the other so if you look good rock that shit if you look not so good wear something else and this is where like friends and family you're the most important because your friend is going to ask you how does this look on me <laughs> be honest don't be like well yeah it's all right you should wear that like no just tell them no nah, just wear something else seriously that's what it all boils down to is anyone has anyone over the years really complained about seeing like a supermodel wearing a thong at the beach? I haven't. I, like, even if I brought my daughter out, it's like, whatever. I mean, I'm not complaining about it. Uh, stupid law, but that's my news pick. Thongs are banned from all public beaches in Florida. And that's uh, June. The what date was it? June the 22nd of 1990. Wow. All right, Mike Ranger. What did you bring for the news round? Well, Mark, uh, I found an article in the Philadelphia Daily News from June 10th, 1980, titled Prior Critically Burned in Lighter Mishap. The article tells us that Richard was suffering third-degree burns over 50% of his, of his face and body. Uh, Pryor's upper body and head were in flames last night when, according to police reports, his cigarette lighter apparently accidentally ignited a flammable liquid in his bedroom. Officers on the scene didn't seem to really believe Pryor's story, and with good reason, what actually happened was Pryor tried to commit suicide by dousing himself in rum and f while freebasing. He spent six weeks in recovery. Uh, interesting uh, side note, 
the uh, lighter story sparked a long debate on the safety of uh, butane lighters. <laughs> wow. Unreal. Jeez. All right. Well, that'll be a tough one to follow. All right. Well, for my uh, news pick here, you know, my first job in radio was doing a remote broadcast from a lobster festival that was that this artist just happened to be playing at. So my job was to check in at each stop set and ask a bunch of rednecks about lobster and if they were excited to see this chart-topping artist later in the evening. So when this article popped up, I threw down the bullshit flag and I knew this would be my worst of news. So let's go to the pages of the Detroit Free Press, June 23rd, 1970. Headline reads, Chubby Checker gets twisted in the law. Chubby Checker, the man who twisted his way into America's pop heart, has been arrested by border authorities in Niagara, New York, on charges of possessing drugs. The inventor of the twist, a pioneer rock dance, was booked with three other men after authorities said they found marijuana, capsules, and hashish in the car with them while they were traveling. Police accused Checker of possessing a quarter pound of marijuana. The others booked on possession charges were... Richard Weasel, John Burchill, and Robert H. Williams. Checker's real name is Ernest Evans. The police said that he was arrested at the Rainbow Bridge in New York, and he was en en route to New York City after completing a two-week engagement at a nightclub in Sunbury, Ontario. Okay, guys. So a quarter pound of weed he had on him. That's four (laughs) ounces for four guys on a tour. Completely reasonable. For that day. So so maybe next time you guys have a smoke, why don't you twist one up for old Chubby Checker at the Rainbow Bridge in June 1970. It was before the Fat Boys. (laughs) So that was my news story. Let's pass it over to Courtney Gaines for the judgment on the news round. Okay, now let's be clear again. So I have to pick the worst of these. This is my job, or to pick what I think is the best of the worst. You have to pick the best of the worst this week. Okay. Uh, sounds odd to say, I guess, the best of the worst, but I'm going to have to go with the uh, the burn. Yeah. I'm going to have to go with the guy lighting himself up. I just think that that's a, that's a crazy-ass story. Did that's, you ever, a, that's a crappy you, story if I've ever heard of one. Did you ever work with Richard Pryor? No, but I remember that. I remember that well. But you know, it's funny you talked about the uh, the uh, the the bikini thing, though. If I'm not mistaken, that's in the news again as an issue wearing thongs. If I'm not mistaken, really? in Florida back. again? I don't know if it's Florida. I can't say sure it's Florida, but it was. It, I, but I think it is actually. Yeah, there was a whole thing about wearing thongs again in some some beach in Florida, some town. What's the big deal? I mean, like, yeah, look. Yeah. I think I summed it up right. And the people in the chat, Joe, I don't know if anybody's brought that up or not, if they agree or disagree with what I said. <laughs> but I think, like, you just know what you're wearing when you leave. There was a matter of fact, I came across this this little uh, snippet. And this could be bad. This this little thing. It says, uh, what's wrong with the thong bikini or bathing suit? And this was a mother that wrote into a newspaper in 1990. And she wrote, what is the big deal about a G-string or thong bikinis? I am a wife and a mother of three boys, and I see nothing wrong with these suits. When I first brought my thong bikini out, my oldest son asked me why I had it on. I told him I like the style and there's nothing to be ashamed of. He has never asked me about it since. That's weird. Like when you go with your kids with a thong bikini. But like if, you're, if you're not bringing your kids. Hey, 
Man Crush, just a few moments ago, you advocated to ask your family and friends if they thought your thong bikini looked okay. She didn't say that she asked him if it looked okay or not. I mean, that's, come on, come on. All right. I think they just have uh, something against hard bodies. But that's, of course, how could I just say, how could I not think of hard bodies with the bikini thing? I don't think it was quite G-strings back then, but there were uh, lots of lots of hot-looking girls in bikinis in that movie, that's for sure. That was my second film, so quite a, quite a second film to get to go to. So I'm surprised they didn't win this round then. But I'll, all right, fine. I'll give well, it to my. Ba- I was, it wasn't supposed to base it on, you know, film experiences. That wasn't you, the rule. You can base it however you want, Courtney. You're the judge, man. He's he's just You're looking the... for the bigger, better deal, man. Oh, the BBD. There you go. BBD. And hard bodies, you know, that word became, you know, actual word in the dictionary after that. And they named a truck after it. So how about that for some pop culture? Right? Wow, look at that. Yeah. All right, Mike Ranger, you pick up a point in our first round and you take control of the board. What category are we going with next? Well, I think we're going to go with hot products, Mark. All right, so I found an ad in the Miami Herald on June 26, 1980, for a store called Electronic Picture House. Uh, This is one of Big Al's sensuous sales. And for the low price of $39.95, which is actually pretty cheap for the time period, uh, you can take yourself home a few new releases from Magnetic Video like The Muppet Movie, Alien, Boys from Brazil, A Man, A Woman, and a Bank, and my pick, because the title just sucks, uh, 1979's The Onion Field. Only problem is, apparently the movie doesn't suck, and James Wood's performance was praised by critics. Uh, The film is based off the 1973 true crime book of the same name. Uh, The story is about an L.A. police officer who was murdered in the onion fields. Tagline for the movie is, What happened in the onion field is true. But the real crime is what happened after. What happened after? I don't know, but Ted Danson's in it. Oh, well, he he bought a bar, (laughs) apparently. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) He split to uh, to Boston and bought a bar. All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the hot products round? All right, so much like Mike, let's go down to the Miami area. Let's go to June 10th of 1990. And this uh, this one, it starts out as a hot product, and it ends with the First Amendment. So how's that for the hot products round? Uh, this, was, it was, this was a huge story back in 1990. And, you know, the more people are told that they couldn't listen to this band or buy the album, the more people who wanted to buy the album and go see this band, and those people who wanted to go see them, were mostly teenagers and the people that they were trying to protect were teenagers. So tell me how this whole thing actually made it made good sense, you know? So anyway, the club Futura that's in Hollywood, Florida, they were holding a concert for the infamous rap group Two live crew. And in an article that I found describing the scene before the event, there were very strict rules for this concert. For one, there would be no one under the age of 18 allowed into the X rated show. Also banned from this concert were beads, bandanas, hats, or scarves. I don't know why, but that's what they wrote. Because uh, bandanas, wearing colored bandanas, mean you belong to certain gangs. You know, I, yeah, I suppose so, right? What about the beads, though? What is, like, they think they were throwing them on stage? Like, I didn't understand that one. Or scarves. Who the hell is wearing a scarf in Hollywood, Florida? Maybe they were anal beads? Ah, oh, possibly. Oh, don't bring oh. anal beads to the club. I mean, that's just kind of a given, but 
it happens, I suppose. They got to throw that rule out there. Uh, but if you had any of that stuff, you either had to get rid of it or you're not coming through the door. Uh, tickets to the sold out show, they were just $20, which is roughly $40 in 2021. But this concert, it was so popular that there were actually two shows. So at 10 p.m., there was a G-rated performance for all ages, which was mostly the people in that line that I was talking about before. And that's actually correct. Two live crew agreed to have one show at 10 p.m. so that the club owner wouldn't get hassled by the law. And then they agreed to come back on at 1 a.m. for the adult-only X-rated performance. And that's when things got crazy with this one. Aside from nearly 400 concert goers and they were all crammed into this little club Futera. There were also dozens of protesters in the street in support of the band's right to free speech. And just as they said they would, two live crew, they took the stage at 1 a.m. They performed the naughty versions of all their songs. And all the while, there were undercover <laughs> undercover detectives in the audience documenting the band's performance throughout the night. So they didn't want to do anything during the show. They didn't want to cause a riot or anything. So once the concert ended, the Hollywood Police Department, they end up like waiting like a block or two. And then they pull over two live crews limo and they end up arresting uh, Luther Luke Skywalker Campbell. And uh, what was the other guy's name? Mike, you probably know better than me. Chris uh, Fresh Kid Ice. I think that's what his name. Uh, I think it was. It's his last name. They always forget. I think it's Wagwan. And they charge both these guys with a misdemeanor of performing obscene material. So they waited out and like by this, uh, the news article I found, they were talking about like a dozen cops were there doing this. A dozen cops were in the audience documenting this thing going on only to bust these guys with a misdemeanor. And they end up being freed from jail without even having to post bail within two hours. So how worth it was that? Um, but anyhow, like all this, this was because U.S. District Judge, it was Jose Gonzalez. He made a ruling on June 6th. The two live crews album, as nasty as they want to be, is obscene. And the police could arrest any store owner that was caught selling that album, which they actually did wow. at the time. So they also didn't want them to play live. And the band thought if they played the second show at 1 a.m., it would all be good because it was adult only. Obviously, it didn't matter because they still got arrested. Uh I, if you look at this whole thing, the whole situation could fill up an entire episode of Dueling Decades. So I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, but Two Lives Crew, their album, as nasty as they want to be, this would go on to become their most popular album as a group. They sold over 2 million copies with this one. They reached number 29 on the Billboard 200. And then uh, the single Me So Horny it would hit number 26 on the Billboard Hot 100. And not to mention, they just they paved the way for any group along the way in terms of freedom of speech with this because they got let go. I mean, in 1992, this whole thing just got reversed, you know? So, but for the hot products round, let's all grab a ticket, go down to club Futera and see two live crew. If you're under 18 G rated, if not, you get the X rated show. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> all right. So for my hot product this week, we're also going to get back on that bus and go pick up another set of concert tickets. So this week, I get to talk about somebody I don't get a chance to bring up enough here on the show, Mr. James Marshall Hendricks. You know, Ooh. everybody knows as big of a deadhead as I am, I actually found Jimmy a few years before I found the dead. And you know how everybody kind of has like that one album that as soon as you pop it on in your mind, it just takes you right back to high school? Oddly enough for me, that's Jimi Hendrix's Axis Bold as Love. 
So in June of 1970, Hendrix was in the middle of his final U.S. tour, the Cry of Love tour. For this tour, Jimmy brought back drummer Mitch Mitchell, along with bassist Billy Cox. And by the end of June 1970, many were actually saying that Jimmy had lost his luster. And even Mitch Mitchell said about the shows that these gigs were mostly unmemorable. They were the same old places. Yet again, if it had been something completely different, that would have been great. But this was like the old band, but much less exciting. In an article in the Boston Globe, June 29th, 1970, it reads, Jimi Hendrix, who didn't quite sound like the guitarist we used to know, stood on the Boston Garden stage Saturday night more as a monument to the originator of today's heavy rock music than as the Titan gearing up for a performance. And then toward the end of the article, he takes a shot at Jimmy by saying Hendrix didn't seem to get too overly involved with his music as he used to. Perhaps it's because he just recovered from a breakdown he had about a year ago where he had to cancel all his tour dates. It really didn't matter to the starry-eyed crowd, he says, which were between the ages of 18 and 21, whose feelings were just about summed up by someone who shouted, Hendrix is God. Uh, another review in, the, in, the, uh, in Boston After Dark June 29th, 1970, said that Hendrix, he was his normal, clever self, but it wasn't the same dynamic tension of just two years ago. People loved him. They clapped. They applauded when necessary. They generally approved. And I guess that's all that really matters. So if you like read anything about Hendrix on this time, the media was very critical of him on this final tour. Maybe it was because Hendrix had become a little more politically charged at this time Clearly, they were not listening to the music. The fans were still with Jimmy, and the music was actually really good. I'm actually a huge fan of Jimi Hendrix's older work. When you take songs like Machine Gun, which is not only important for its social commentary, but musically, that song gave us riffs and signatures and a style that would shape rock and metal for years to come. Then you have songs like Roomful of Mirrors, Dolly Dagger, just excellent stuff in the late career of uh, Jimi Hendrix. So I give you tickets to the Cry of Love tour, June 1970. Don't listen to the critics. The music was fantastic. He's leaving with that. Yeah, it's a walk-off. <laughs> I had to step away for a second. You'll, you'll see why. You'll see why. So uh, I got to make my pick first, though, right? As much as I'm a giant Jimi Hendrix fan, I'm going to have to go with the two-life crew story. I think that's a great story. And I saw that in a documentary, and – yeah, and I, and I get, yeah, that's that's a famous story. So I, I love it. So I'm going with that. But like when I say Jimmy Hendrix is my guy, I'm not kidding. Oh. I don't know if you can see, let me see. There you go. I drew this picture. Oh, wow. This is this is a copy of it. I it was it was a, you know, 11 by 16 by ham when I was 16 years old. My son has it now. Wow. It's one of my more proud art uh, art things that was taken off of a thing called Note for Note. Jimmy Hendrix Note for Note which shows you how to play some songs. But uh, but yeah. So, Hendrix invented lead guitar. Let's yeah. just let's, let's just leave it at that. And uh, the best story I ever heard was um, Pete Towns. Eric Clapton took Pete Townsend to see Hendrix, and they both thought at that point they would never, you know, they were out of a job. <laughs> that that's how good wow. Jimi Hendrix is. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, man, crush. Well, you picked up a point, and we're heading into our final one point round. Where are we going next? Mm, this is tough. We're right in the middle. Let's uh, let's go television. Alrighty. Right All right. So let's go uh, June 25th of 1990. So while I was looking at the summer of 1990, and we've talked about this ad nauseum about like the summer is just crap for television. It's just 
especially with this game. It just is, you know. Uh, yeah. But this is a best of the worst episode, so it kind of fits, yeah. you know. So let's talk about cable television. And at the time, cable TV was exploding. I have June 1990. And as a cheap comparison, it's almost like how we have it today, where anyone and everyone is trying to make their own streaming service, right? Speaking of, speaking of which, uh, Dueling Decades is now on Pod TV. So if you go to, uh, there's a Pod TV app, which is another streaming service, and that's on Roku, Fire Stick, and everything else. Figured get that little cheap plug in there. But it's the same thing. And back in 1990, lots of companies were trying to capitalize on cable TV by creating their own new channel. That being said, I ran across this article that listed all of the new channels that were being introduced. And just for 1990 alone, here's just an example of what was being launched. Okay, We had uh, the American Trial Network, Asian Network, Career Channel Network, Career TV Network, Celtic Television, Chiller Channel, that one's still around, Cowboy TV Network, Digital Music Express, Digital Channel, Food Channel, that's still around, which is now Food Network, right? They yeah. changed it. Uh, Gaming Network, Global Channel, Global Village Network, How To Channel, which is YouTube now, uh, In Court, International Channel, Maximum Entertainment, network i think that might be still around monitor channel music image channel pay-per-view network obviously that's still around uh sci-fi channel still around talk television talk tv network all right then all the way at the bottom of this list we get the most amazing cable channel ever created i liken this idea to a it's it's almost like a bad car crash because had i known this was a channel there would have been no way that i could ignore watching this one matter of fact <laughs> Fast forward 31 years, and we're all very close to hitting the desired demographic of said channel, which is pretty damn depressing. Uh, here's the launch of the Senior American Network. All right. And the uh, the Senior American Network, obviously, it's targeted at folks older than 50. So I have like seven years before this becomes like a fantastic idea. Uh, but what can we expect from the Senior American Network, you ask? For one, I mean, this is obvious. I think there would be a riot if this wasn't included. Satellite bingo. was good. They were going to hang their hat on that one. And then uh, we also get the uh, senior citizen beauty pageant. I mean, oh. yeah. Who wouldn't want to be the judge? Best spider veins. Am I right? Uh, then uh, they also had the over 50 matchmaker show hosted by Marty Allen. I don't even know who that is. And possibly, they didn't even... They didn't even confirm this one. They just wrote in the article, possibly a talk show hosted by Tebby Reddles, who's very interested in doing it. Uh, then you also had uh, senior citizen sporting events. Maybe they'll have like some spry senior sporting events, like mud wrestling or something. Shuffle Hopefully board. that was pitched. Yeah, shuffle, shuffle board for seniors. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, they're going to have reruns of everything that was already playing on Nick at Night at the time. So they really went out of the box in that one. So I'm looking at this thing and I was like, all right, did this last? Because it's obviously it's not around today. So I went through our sponsor, newspapers.com, and I'm flipping year after year to see how well Senior American Network was doing. Well, in an article that I found from 1993, they were talking about just that, how well this onslaught of new channels did over the last two plus years. And it goes on to say that no cable providers picked up many of these channels and that included the Senior American Network. Oh, no. So, yeah. So I was uh, I was very sad to find out that there would be no Senior 
like bikini contests for us to watch or anything else that they had promised. So I give you the uh, the not so launch of the senior American network to cable television. Wow. All right, Mike Ranger, what did you bring for the television round? Well, Mark, on uh, June 1st at 5 p.m. Eastern time launched a revolutionary television network of the very first of its kind a 24-hour news network called the Cable News Network, or CNN. Mm. Founded by Ted Turner and Reese Schoenfield, the network has spent 41 years giving the television audience honest, hard-nosed news. I found an article in the arts section of the Philadelphia Inquirer titled, Cable News is a Nonstop Kaleidoscope. The article invites the TV addict to enjoy nonstop news and come get their fill of sports, fashions, gossip, financial and gardening tips, and almost anything else that they could think of. Round the clock, nonstop, and mostly live, CNN offers constant updates of news, and and fans of all news radio networks should enjoy seeing what they hear. So there you have it. Uh, The downfall of modern civilization shot itself into the airways (laughs) via satellite at precisely 5 p.m. June 1st, 1980. Thanks, Ted. Ooh. thought that was CNN, too. All right, guys, so for my television selection, let's head to the pages of the Courier-Post out of Camden, New Jersey, June 24th, 1970, for an article that reads, With the return of midi skirts, wide-brimmed hats, and other similar fashions, it's only logical that television should create a series exploiting the period of time they came from, the 1930s. And such airs, Happy Days. No, not, not the show you're thinking of. A weekly one-hour show reprising music and comedy of the 1930s, not to mention the 1940s. It had its premiere on CBS TV Thursday night, replacing the Jim Neighbors variety TV series for the summer. The premiere, seen in advance by this viewer, also attempts a mixture of camp and nostalgia, trying to attract younger viewers as well. The style, in fact, leans heavily on the comic techniques used in Laughing and Hee Haw, quick humor, cutting away to music. Louis Nye is the host of Happy Days, but the real stars, without a doubt, are going to be the low-pressure satirists Bob and Ray, probably because of their radio-orientated sketches, fit in really good with the theme and tone of the series. Then the article closes with, in short, Despite several nice moments, there is a certain lack of direction, either from the host or the content. Nothing in the world exists as a vacuum, it says. If you're going to revive a period of history, it's a good idea to let people know why. So, a radio show on TV about past decades? Yeah, that's not going to (laughs) work. Also, quick reminder, you can now watch Dueling Decades on Pod TV. Because, you know, it's your history. We just fight for it. So (laughs) I present you with a show that lasted just one summer, only 10 episodes, and like the sixth episode got lost and didn't get aired until like 76. I don't know. So it's Happy Days on CBS, June 25th, 1970. Just not the happy days you're thinking of. (laughs) All right, let's pass it over to Courtney Gaines for his ruling on the television round. Yeah, I'll have to go with 1930s Happy Days. That <laughs> just sounds like the worst. Uh, you know, though, uh, picking, uh, you know, the senior one would have been an excellent segue for Queen Bees, you know. Absolutely. Which we could still, which we could still do if it's time. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, go for it. Uh, 
because because you know the plot of Queen Bees is about this woman Ellen Bernstein who is going to this old folks home just for a month while they redecorate her house and her house burns to the ground and so she has to actually live there and what she finds is essentially that it's like high school for seniors and uh, so in fact the pr producer uh, writer found in his, when his real grandmother went that that's what it was like is that in, 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 apparently it's very clicky there's popular crowds and non-popular crowds and that just like if, if going to in a senior being a senior going to a senior home wasn't bad enough it, having to go back to high school like that's that's just that sounds like a complete nightmare for me that's a lot i i did not enjoy high school and i would not want to go back as a senior i wouldn't have tolerance i'd be punching people out i think so uh so but i all i i have i just have a cameo in it where i i uh well, but I got to do a scene with Ellen Bernstein, Anne Margaret, Jane Curtin, and Loretta wow, Devine. Wow. I couldn't say no to that. And uh, I, I uh, the scene, the first half of the scene, I'm just watching them talk in a coffee house, and, and then I jack their purse, and they catch me. And it's a funny little scene. It made it. Made, I was surprised that you know the, the clip made uh, the trailer yeah. and all that. So that was great. But um, for the first half of the day, I just really got to watch these you know iconic actresses with all very different styles of methods of acting. Uh, do their thing and that was absolutely you know to get paid to just sit there and watch them work all day was was great so it was a really good experience that is awesome is that out already yes it is it's been out for about i think it's been out for a little over a week now or maybe it's in it's this will be this yeah the the second weekend would be this week so it's doing it's doing pretty good it's out in theaters and on vod and uh you know i did it a few years ago i was wondering if, when it was going to come out because it has this you know great cast and all of that and uh, i think it was just yeah covid just slowed everything down and and now it's uh, it's out and about that's awesome i i want to check that out i did see the uh the trailer for it and one of the things that uh, i also heard about old folks uh homes they also spread venereal diseases more than like <laughs> and that's what i heard man I i'm not even making that up i heard it's like swingers galore our producers oh, throwing his goodness. finger up do you have something to add to that, Joe? Is there an expose? No, I've I've heard about this a lot. Uh, they actually have sex ed for uh, their uh, for their seniors wow. because uh, back when they were doing it, I guess those things didn't exist. Like a little bit of sheepskin or something. Who knows? But uh, yeah, they uh, they go buck wild in there. Oh man, I've heard stories, man. I've heard stories about these communities, especially go back to Florida. I've heard some crazy uh, yeah. communities in Florida. Oh man, it's always Florida. Any anything's crazy is always Florida. Watch Datelines; <laughs> they always started Florida. Florida, man. it's oh. the heat. Yeah, you go down to Florida yeah. and you go down to like the villages. That's just one giant petri dish with the heat and everything. Oh, stay away. <laughs> It's a big orgy. <laughs> well, this game is all tied up at one point each. We're heading into our first two-point round. I got control of the board. You know what, guys? Let's go over to the music round. Mm. All right. Released June 8th, 1970, I give you Bob Dylan's 10th album, Self-Portrait. Now, this is an album that's jam-packed with songs in the public domain and not your favorite versions of a few of your favorite songs. So much like the criti critically acclaimed Blonde on Blonde, this album was actually a double album. But that's where the comparisons can stop. Instead of being the voice of a generation on self-portrait, Bob Dylan just repeated the voices of the past, as this album is mostly comprised of covers ranging from old-timey folky songs to personal favorites like Paul Simon's The Boxer, which had just come out a year earlier. 
So Dylan himself said that self-portrait was something of a joke. It was far below the standards that he set for himself in the 1960s, and it was just made to get people off his back and to end the whole spokesperson of a generation tag. Uh, The album is also seen as a way to beat the bootleggers from getting this material and basically just cashing in with extra scraps they had laying around. A review in the Gazette out of Montreal, Quebec, Canada, June 27, 1970, said when talking about the album and its iconic self-portrait cover, which was painted by Dylan, this may well be the essential Bob Dylan and the least listenable. Produced by Bob Johnson with the help of 50 assorted musicians, Self-Portrait's 24 songs seem like a private collection of Dylan's favorite material gone public. And then he goes on to say, If with the same music we could call forth a vision of Bob wandering around his house some morning in his pajama bottoms, humming raspily to himself, then these two recordings may have some real soul to them. So I give you Bob Dylan with Self-Portrait. June eighth, nineteen seventy. Mike, was this was it Bob Dylan that you saw in concert? Where yes, I um, yeah, I slept out in an alley uh, in Poughkeepsie, and I uh, yeah to get tickets for it. And it was right, it was two thousand two. His new album had just come out, and he did not play one song like that anybody had ever heard before. Um, I left a little bit early because after like the first hour and a half, I was just. It's like, man, I don't, this is all off the new album that I don't have. And I, I had heard his final song was Like a Rolling Stone. Should have stayed. There is a version of Like a Rolling Stone and Quinn the Eskimo on this ver- on this yeah. album, but they're versions from the Isle of Wight, and they're just not even good oh. versions of the songs. So. Nah. All right, Mike Ranger, I'll toss it over to you next. What did you bring for the music round? Well, unfortunately, Mark, it looks like Bob Dylan is just going to get his ass kicked tonight because uh, on June 23rd, 1980, Bob Dylan released the second of three albums that would be released during his conversion to Christianity. These albums became known as his Christianity trilogy. The first titled, the first was titled Slow Train Coming, the third A Shot of Love, and this album titled Saved. The 20th studio album by Bob Dylan features gospel arrangements and lyrics of personal faith, The album did reach number three in the UK and number 24 in the US, but failed to go gold. I found a review in the New York Daily News on June 30th, 1980. The review says that Dylan has made the transition from rock and roller to holy roller. And and writer Bill Carlton laments how he misses the old Dylan, the fiery, cynical, topical troubadour who gave the world great songs like Oxford Town, Mr. Tambourine Man, and Like a Rolling Stone. He used to move mountains. Now he just sits on top of them. You know, it's interesting because it's not that Dylan didn't bring a lot of God or biblical stuff into his music before music before he did do a lot of that, but it was always from like a cynical kind of uh, perspective. And now he becomes like a a little bit more of a preacher. Not one of my favorites. Yeah. He kind of went from questioning everything to just falling in line. Yeah. All right, man crush. Uh, What Bob Dylan album did you bring? (laughs) it's funny uh none i did not thank god (laughs) all right so let's go uh let's go june 5th of 1990 and it you know what at first i i saw this one i was gonna pick it and i was like i hope my wife doesn't listen to this episode because she'll kill me for this and uh stacy lanigan you might kill me for this i saw you in the chat (laughs) 
Uh, but I, I approached my wife about this first and I sold her my side of the story and she actually agreed with me. So I'm in the clear here. And if you're a fan of this group, I did give this group props on a best of episode with their smash hit album that came out in August of 1988. So if you're feeling bad about this selection, find solace by listening to that uh, older episode. I think that was like last year, maybe. However, this album, it's just not good. It's not by this point. In 1990, every guy in elementary school despised these guys. Despised every guy. Matter of fact, I remember this band being used as an insult, like <laughs> to insult other dudes in elementary school. Like if you really wanted to piss somebody off, you just spread a rumor that he listened to this group, and it was like the biggest burn of elementary school. If you could do that. Anyhow, uh, the previous album, the one that came out in 1988, uh, that went eight times platinum. So two years later, this album went three times platinum. So in other words, five million adoring fans of the other album would agree that this album is just not good. Yes, uh, this album, it did hit number one on the Billboard uh, 200, and it featured the hit single Step by Step, which reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100. However, the rest of the album is nothing but filler. The song tonight, this is what my wife brought up, and she said, make sure you mention that. Okay, the first two songs is Al Murgid. Tonight it would also hit number seven on the Billboard Hot 100. But honestly, I don't even remember how that song went. And the other singles, Valentine Girl and Let's Try It Again, they didn't even do well. So let's take a step back and let's look at the, the sheer laziness of this album, okay? When I say it's nothing but filler, this is the truth to the fans of this band that are in the chat. <laughs> If like if Stacy's going nuts, like you get two, you get two songs that end with the word again, which both of them arguably feature the least popular new kid, Danny Wood. You had let's try it again, which I mentioned before. And then you had never going to fall in love again. Lazy. Then you had, listen, this is how, if you're going to have a lazy album and you're going to put it together and you need a filler song, then you use happy birthday. And that's what they did. They put happy birthday on this album. It doesn't get any lazier. I'm looking at the lyrics of the song. Happy birthday to you. This is your day on this day for you. We're going to love you. Like it's happy birthday. Get out of here. And then, then there's two more songs with the word baby in them. Baby. I believe in you and stay with me, baby. Lazy. Then you had the monotonous games where they repeat the word games 37 times. And and then they round up the album with a funny feeling. And I got a funny feeling that this album sucks. And this is <laughs> New Kids on the Block, Step by Step. Wow. All right, let's pass it down to Courtney Gaines for his <laughs> judgment on the music round. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, new Kids. I mean, anybody's defending New Kids, you know, whatever. I guess you're into pop. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, that's, yeah. Oh, that, Stacy just said in the chat, "Stay with me, baby" is awful in capital letters, and she's a fan. So okay. I'll throw it. Thank you, Stacy. <laughs> Thank you, Stacy. But yeah, I would think I would think you know the the I have to go with Bob Dylan, the Christian record. Sorry to get you excited <laughs> there, and and just because yeah, you know, I think uh, I think it's just such a crazy thing that you know he was a voice of a generation, and then and then like you said, sort of became a preacher. It, you, some people hung their hat on him and then he, you know, he just sort of, 
<laughs> sort of lets them down in the end, you know, is, is, is interesting to me, you know, even though he has become very, very religious, which is, which is rather interesting. Right. I, like how did he find his way from where he initially was to that? But uh, it's a drug. Yeah. I think it's the biggest letdown of them all, I would say. So I got to go with that one. But uh, since we're on the subject of music, can I plug my music? For yeah, a second? absolutely. Okay. So I got a couple of things going on. I've got a, uh, I got an acoustic record I'm putting out right now called Acoustic Gains Volume One, and and I sort of say it, it harkens back to the '70s and that when I grew up, there was so many songs that had acoustic me, guitars yeah, yeah. in them and things. Which nowadays you just don't hear any. You know, it's it's pretty rare anyway. So uh, I put out a single last week called Cherish, and another single is coming out called Let It Ride, which is very vintage, very blues. And that's coming out uh, on Monday the 5th. So I don't know if it's a great time right after the 4th, but that's when it's coming out. So um, so got that going. And then I also have a band called Ripple Street. And we put out three singles this year for us so far. Our last single was called Would You. And I would say to say it sounds Black Sabbath-esque is, is, is fair. And uh, it's pretty heavy. And uh, I like the way it came out. And we've got two more singles we're going to drop on that to complete an EP this year. So you can check all that out on Spotify if you have that, or you can find it on iTunes or Apple or, or Deezer or Amazon and all that good stuff. And there's my music plug. I listened to the, I listened to Ripple Street. I yeah. actually got like a Alice in Chains type vibe. What, what, was, it, was it the Would You song or was it something? No, else? it was... Um... Slabs. Oh, Slab I'm City. Yeah, Slab yeah. City, Alice yeah. Chains. Uh, when we did our EPK on that song, we threw that in there. As a matter of fact, my girlfriend, who is you know a '90s girl and loves '80s music, though she she was the one who really said Alice in Chains. So very good. So I, I I'm not. I like Slab City. You can, we have a good, pretty good video for that up on YouTube as well. So, uh, and some of the the first record uh, is definitely '90s grungeish all the way. So, who would you say uh, influences you guys? I know you're talking about the the acoustic and the 70s stuff but like no, i don't mind talking about, i don't mind goes. talking about both both projects at all they're they're you know they're, they're both aspects of what i'm doing so um right as i don't i don't I, I approach acting and music the same way in terms of like i don't get caught up in influence you know what i mean like like you can't be somebody else right so right. even, so if you, even especially the, probably the more you love them the least you the less you can be like them right so you got to find out you can be inspired by them and you got to like do what you do you know and to me, when you uh, with my uh, with Ripple Street, um, the the bass player uh, Stephen Lee Adams, we've done done a lot of co-writing and writing with the bass player and you know bass riffs is it you know when you're a guitar player and you write songs with guitar, you 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 are sort of Bob Dylan-esque where you just try to cram a ton of lyrics in. That's what we all do, right? <laughs> right. But when you when you're doing a rock band and you're and you're writing songs with a bass player, you tend to have to really simplify your lyrics. You know, you have to cut kind of what you would maybe do if you were just writing a guitar song kind of in half. And so it forces you to kind of really, so now I'll say dumb it down, but get to your point. And that's an interesting challenge. And that's what I like about co-writing is it brings out different aspects. And so I think maybe Steve was pretty interested uh, or influenced by, by the grunge. And maybe that's why we have a bit of a grunge sound. I don't know. What about your acoustic stuff? Like as far as like writing goes and all that. It's, it's really all about feel for me, man. It's not about anything else. It's about, it's about, you know, and I think what, you know, I think what separates me as the man from the boys as an actor is I can think I can go deep into emotional content. I can go places. Some people can't go in my opinion. Um, and right. I'm willing to go. And I think that's the other thing. Are you all willing to go there? Right. Um, but it's also the training I've had, but um, it's the same thing with the music. I'm trying to connect to something emotionally. I'm trying to connect to a feeling that I'm having about something. And then whatever 
comes out of the guitar, comes out of the guitar that goes with that, right? Or you start writing a song and it brings up some emotion and then there's a lyric that comes out of it. But for me, music's been, uh, you know, a lot of it's therapy. If you, again, if you listen to the first Ripple Street album, it's just a straight up breakup album. It's a bitter, angry breakup album. <laughs> right. But thank God I had a venue to get my feelings out. It, right. You know, right. I think Which that's people what's, need. I think that's what's great about art. Art gives you yeah. a chance to express yourself. And uh, I think that people that go postal don't have a release. And then they do something incredibly crazy instead, you know. Get crazy doing, you know, act crazy in a movie, act crazy writing a song, you know, don't, don't, don't uh, get out a submachine gun and go nuts on people, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> we had like, I know it's not the time now because we got a round left, but it's up to you. We had like, what was it like two or three weeks ago? We had uh Brendan B Brown from Weedis was on and he did uh teenage dirt bag acoustic Ooh. on the show live. We could maybe do we could maybe do an acoustic soon. I could maybe even do "Let It Ride," which is the song that's coming out. So, oh, all right, cool. But well, let's let's do it after the round. We'll, we'll yeah, cover it at the end. rest your voice up. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Mike Ranger, you picked up a couple of points in that round. You jump out to the lead and you take control of the board, heading into our final movies round, which means you can go first or defer to one of us. Oh, I think I'll go first. Uh, released on June twenty seventh of nineteen eighty was the fourth installment of the Love Bug series, Herbie Goes Bananas. Walt Disney serves up easily the weakest film of the series so far. Uh, this time, everyone's favorite Volkswagen finds himself in the hands of Jim Douglas's nephew, Pete, and his friend, Davey, as they make a journey to race in the Grand Premio in Brazil. Along the way, they pick up a pickpocketing kid named Paco, and they're off to the races. Highlight of the film is probably when Herbie fights a bull. But honestly, my favorite part is when they make them walk the plank. So uh, bring your kids, don't dress up, come exactly as you are for the latest film from Walt Disney that has all the critics split. It's Herbie Goes Bananas. Wow. Yeah. I've never seen that one. I've never even heard of that. I didn't know they made that one. <laughs> it is fucking fantastic. Oh, it's it's just great. At one point, he covers himself in bananas and nobody knows who he is. Wow. Oh, genius. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Were they peeled? No, no, oh. that would have that would have made a mess. Stop <laughs> being crazy. <laughs> All right, man, crush. What did you bring for the movies round? All right, so let's go uh, June first, nineteen ninety. And look, th there are good movies, there are bad movies, and then there are movies that are so bad that they're actually great. Mm -hmm. And this movie, this lands in that so bad, they're actually great category. And when I say bad in relation to this movie, I personally don't find this is a bad movie, but it's not for everyone. For instance, like if I showed this movie to one of my friends, they'd probably be like, what the fuck are we watching? If I showed this movie to Mike Ranger, Mike would probably be uber excited to see it. And I know that because I, I think I saw this movie with you on a 35 millimeter. Uh, it, it, it's not a movie that you'd sit down with your mother with to watch. Well, I don't know. Like, maybe you would, but my mother would probably have me, like, seek professional help if I suggested this one. But anyhow, like, uh, this one at the box office, this movie only took in $200,000. This is around $400,000 in 2021. But that's basically because it didn't get many screens. On the release day alone, I only found a handful of theaters, maybe four. And then it was rolled out over the course of June. That said, this is a cult classic, and it kind of gained its following mostly at the rental store. 
And probably the place I saw it first would probably be like late night HBO or Cinemax in the early 90s. It wasn't on all the time, but when it was on, you caught it, you remembered it. And this is also one of those VHS covers where I, I don't think I could have rented this with my mother paying because I would have gotten eyebrow for this one. Like if I brought it up, she would be like, huh? What is this? Put this back. And Courtney, just so you know, my parents like let me watch whatever. But this one, I don't know if they would have. Anyway, in an interview with the writer director, it was Frank Henenlotter from 2014. He said this movie, it had a hard time getting an art rating. And according to Frank, and maybe you can uh, you can add to this. He says that the MPAA, they're funded by the major production companies. So if somebody like Warner Brothers, they bring a movie to the rating board and they're like, hey, we want a, an R rating on this one. The MPAA will say, uh, okay, uh, cut these four frames and you got it. In his case, they dropped off the movie with the MPAA for a rating and the head of the MPAA called them back and said, hey, congratulations, you guys are the first film rated s to which uh they replied what do you mean like s s for sex and uh the head of the mpaa said no s for shit and uh all that being said they ended up releasing this movie as unrated so obviously that hurts you're not you're not going to get as many screens that way so anyhow so if you're in the mood for monster movies mad scientists lawnmower mutilations decapitations real new york city hookers who actually earn their sad credentials pimps who dress like joey buttafuoco movies endorsed by bill murray morton downey jr parodies super crack exploding prostitutes freezers filled with body parts purple nipples and pubes and drilling into your own head for ideas then go out and find yourself a copy of the movie frankenhooker it's a classic yeah let me tell you all right, so for my movie selection, I'm going to tell you guys all a tale about three girls who came to Hollywood to make it big, but they only found sex, drugs, and sleaze. Released June 17th, 1970, I give you Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Oh, rated yeah. X. Uh, this film is actually yeah. a really good early example of a film, much like Man Crush said, that was so bad, people actually liked it. It's listed among the 100 most enjoyable bad movies ever made in the official Razzie Movie Guide. Now, you won't even find a bad review for this movie by legendary film critic Roger Ebert, because he wrote it. His future co-host, though, Gene Siskel, on the other hand, he panned this movie, gave it a zero-star rating, and named it one of his 20 worst movies of 1970. So, Roger Ebert wrote the movie along with director Russ Meyer, who is the same director who gave us the classics Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, and Wild Gals of the Naked West. Classic. So originally intended to be a sequel to the 1967 film Valley of the Dolls, Beyond kind of actually became a parody and only a sequel in namesake. It was made on a budget of just $900,000, which is $6.2 million in 2021. In that movie, it made 10 times the amount of its budget back at the box office, which wow. for an X-rated movie kind of classified it as a hit. Yeah, wow. The cast was mostly made up of unknowns because they didn't think they needed any more than the Valley of the Dolls name attached to it. The film revolves around an all-girl rock band trying to make it big when they meet up with a sleazy producer who is loosely based on Phil Spector. In retrospect... 
not the best character model. So <laughs> this movie has absolutely everything in it, including a kicking soundtrack by the Strawberry Alarm Clock, the on-screen debut of Pam Greer. She actually had like a brief cameo role as an extra in this film. And just as many drugs as a Cheech and Chong film, bisexual orgies, beheadings, bikinis, and one young lady has a not-so-happy ending when she deep-throats a pistol. But my favorite thing about this film is that it gave us the quote, she was living in a single room with three other individuals. One of them was male, and the other two? Well, the other two were females. God only knows what they were up to in there. And furthermore, Susan, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised to learn that all four of them habitually smoked marijuana cigarettes. Reefers. Of course, that was famously used as the intro to Sublime's 1992 cover of the toys Smoke Two Joints. I give you Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, June 17th, 1970. Well, you all made a good case on this one, obviously, movies, and I've not seen any of them, but I've certainly heard of all of them. Well, actually, I'd say I hadn't heard of Frankenhooker, and I think that's why I'm going to have to go with it, because it's just the the greatest title, Frankenhooker. It's actually, like, Mike, did you see this one with me on 35mm at that festival? I don't remember. I don't remember if I was, I don't know, I don't remember if I was there for that. You've seen it, though. um, No, yeah, 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 I have a couple copies of it. But uh, you know you're really right about the MPAA uh, as far as that goes. I did I helped to co-produce a movie called Dorm Days that I was in. They've done like two more since, and you know went straight to video on, but, but through MGM, which was that was a type of MGM behind us, pretty big deal. But uh, it was a it was it was took place in a college dorm, and it was like you know mistaken identity and that kind of stuff. But we had a hooker, you know, there was a hooker looking for the guy in the, in the show. And that was, that was one of the whole mistake things it was a French student and a hooker. And, and just because there was a hooker in it, we had to go rated R. Wow. Just because there was no nudity. So then we ended up adding some nudity and everything because now we felt the expectation with R, we had yeah. to deliver on, right. on that. But they did cite uh, something that I thought was interesting, which is Pretty Woman, which you would not, I would not think of Pretty Woman as an R rated movie, but because she's a prostitute, it is. Wow, pretty pretty woman is an R-rated movie. Look it up. Look wow. it up. That was that kind of shut us down for any argument after that. When it gets like pretty woman, <laughs> but if I'm not mistaken, that's that's the case, yeah. That is pretty crazy. Actually, let me ask you about this cuz Mark brought up Razzies and we bring that up constantly cuz Stallone always comes up and he was like yeah. nominated or won like every friggin' year as an actor and you've been in like a ton of stuff. Like what and especially the people that you work with, I'm sure they've been nominated or won at some point. What is the thought <laughs> on set about, is it like a joke or do people really get buttered about the Razzies? You know, I've never really had to deal with it. So thank God no one's given me one or anybody else. So that's not really come up before, but I've, I've certainly been in movies that, uh, that would, that could have earned it. That's for sure. I've been in a few stinkers. <laughs> I'm not going to say what, but I've been in a few stinkers in my day. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, it's weird. Like we look at it all the time, and it's like, how can you give this actor a Razzie for whatever movie? Like I just had Wyatt Earp. Uh, mm. Was that last week? And uh, that was up for a Razzie, and it was up for an Academy Award at the same time. It's like interesting. Yeah, how could that happen? You know? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. It's just wild. what about like just awards in general? You know, when like how does that like what kind of weight? Does that hold like when you're uh, when you're picking a movie or doing anything like that? Are you looking for that? I'm I'm usually not in the you know uh, 
I have, you know, I'd say probably the closest to anything I've been, uh, the couple of things that I've been in that had a shot, maybe it would have been Memphis Bell, Memphis Bell period yeah. piece and all that. Yeah. And then when I did Texas Rising, that mini series a few years back, they had done the Hatfields and McCoys. So the expectation of being nominated for an Emmy was there. We didn't get it, uh, but in, but it was, you know, in the trades as a snub, blah, blah, blah. So that was, that was a little disappointing. I mean, I've never, I've never been to an awards thing and a big awards, like an Academy or an Emmy where I was actually involved in something. So um, that would be, I think that'd be exciting and nerve wracking and all of that, you know? I'm sure. I just figured I'd ask because we always forget to bring yeah. that up and the Razzies always come up. We got to We got to get somebody that's really pissed off about the Razzies because <laughs> I want to hear like why. All right, man crush. Well, you picked up two points in that round and duelers. That means this game is tied between man, uh, man crush and Mike Ranger. So we're going to go to a lightning wild card oh round. Right. All right, man crush. Why don't you go first on this one? All right. This is uh, this was a no brainer for me. June 29th, 1990. I have yet to get something that ties two of my picks together. So when I saw this story pop up, I had to use this for the wild card round. All right. All right. So this is a new story. It's a caravan to cruise against censorship, a caravan against censorship sponsored by local radio station. Golf 104 will drive around the Capitol complex this morning, giving away skimpy bathing suits and cassette recordings of the obscene two live crew album. We feel that music censorship is an important issue and it's a dangerous thing to do to people, said Bill Marriott, general manager of Golf 104. The Constitutional Caravan will form at 7.30 a.m. in the parking lot across the street from the governor's mansion on Adams Street. A petition urging Governor Bob Martinez to back off his attacks of dirty lyrics will be circulated and later delivered. None of us really like rap, this is a quote, uh, but if they censor rap... What's next? Flag said the station doesn't play rap, but it will give away 12 cassettes of the dirty version of two live crews hit album as nasty as they want to be. A federal judge in South Florida, like we talked about before, has ruled that the album is obscene at the bottom of this petition. Flag said is a PS and I quote lay off the butt floss bikinis, Bobo, (laughs) a reference to the bare buns thong bathing suits. The governor and cabinet recently banned from beaches and state parks. Thong bikinis will be given to the first five people who agree to wear them during the demonstration, Flag said. The caravan will circle the Capitol ten times, one for each of the amendments in the Bill of Rights, and then return to the starting point, Flag said. So there you have it. It's the caravan to cruise against censorship tied together with two live crew and thong bikinis. Wow. All right, Mike Ranger, what did you bring for the wild card round? Well, I'm going to go uh, with the movie category. Um, released on June 6, 1980, was a low-budget Canadian film featuring Playboy Playmate of the Year, Dorothy Stratton. The sci-fi fantasy comedy takes place in the 31st century, where a blonde android named Galaxina leads a crew aboard a space cruiser in search of a gem with unlimited power. Uh, shortly after the film's release, star Dorothy Stratton was murdered by her husband, Paul Snyder. He tied her up, assaulted her, put a gusho- put a shotgun to her face, and pulled the trigger, and then turned the gun on himself. So, wow, that's that's just the worst. <laughs> At least you didn't start the game with that. That is the worst. That's my feel good story. <laughs> All right, let's go down to Courtney Gaines for the final ruling on this game. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's a terrible and sad story. I'm gonna have to go with the caravan cruise just because of how he tied <laughs> everything together as he did. Uh, you got to give it to him. That was clever. 
Sweet. All right, man, Chris, that means you win this game. Congratulations. I think then, uh, obviously, like, I wanted to ask you about something, Courtney. Like, I'm yeah. a huge fan of uh, Back to the Future. Yeah. And, uh, you know, is like, do you ever wonder about this? Like, in an alternate universe, you might have hooked up with Lorraine at the Enchantment and Seated or by yeah, the Seated. That, that, that's, that's what, that's what uh, people always bring up, that I would have become Crispin Glover's father or something. Yeah. Or whatever. Not Crispin Glover's, but uh, Michael J. Fox's father. Yeah, right. that's, a, that's a weird or, thought. Or maybe not. Maybe it just would have split the universe. Have you ever thought? what that alternative universe would have been like with you with the helm there. No, no, <laughs> no. <nothing>. no. <laughs> but it, but it, go, it goes to show you that even you do a small part in a movie, if it's a pivotal part, it can actually bring up, you know, people talking about yeah. things like that. So there are no small parts, I guess, as they say, right. It's pretty amazing. So do you want to, uh, you want to do a song for, uh, for the people? Sure. Let's do a song. Let me go grab my neck here. All right, sweet. All right, let it ride. Let's get the guitar. We're gonna see the guitar a little bit, a little bit anyway, right? Got to let it all ride. Got to let it slide, slide, slide. Changing time. Well, you know I've been so blind. Felt it coming on, oh yeah, we'll ride you wrong. Baby, gone, oh Lord, well, I can't deny. I said, baby, gone. She long gone, yeah. Had to leave. She got to be free and right. Built it coming on, on yeah, we'll ride and wrong. To baby gone, oh Lord, well, I can't deny. I don't wanna know what it can't see, said it don't wanna face. Harsh reality that you ain't my baby No, 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 no more Till I guess it don't Wanna face the score Gotta let it ride Got to let it ride Got to let it slide, slide, slide Changing time Well, you know I've been so Coming on, oh yeah, we'll ride and wrong. Said, baby, gone, oh Lord, well, I can't deny. I said, baby, gone, oh Lord, well, so mine. Got to let it ride. That was awesome. You know what freaked me out, though, is the fact that that was a beautiful song, and I grew up with you in Children of the Corn, and Malachi just sung a beautiful song to me. There you go. Messes you up forever now, right? Yeah. I'll never watch that movie the same ever again. <laughs> there you go.
that was awesome, man. That was fantastic. People uh, go out and check it. Are you, is your stuff on YouTube as well, like your uh, solo stuff? or? Yeah, you can find some solo stuff. Uh, there's a song, Journeyman, that's on there. It's kind of like I cut a bunch of stuff, clips I've done and video and photos and all that. And that, that, that song's a raw, real rocker that uh, Matt Stone from Guns produced for me years ago. And Slash actually oh, nice. lead on. So that's pretty wild. Wow. So, but you, you guys check, there's the videos, of Ripple Street, there's some videos of mine and nice. check, check them out. Fantastic, no. dude. Thank you. Oh, go ahead, Mark. I was, uh, oh, no. I was, I knew where you were going. Go ahead. I knew where I was going. All right. No, Gordon, I got a question for you. I, I hear that, uh, you've played with fish and that there's a little story there yes. about a, uh, a prank you might've pulled with Trey. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so, so, well, take it back to the beginning. I was hitchhiking from Nova Scotia to Detroit. A friend of mine got married in Nova Scotia. I was going to see this girl in Detroit. It was right before can't buy me love came out i thought let me do this before you know i get you know you know too recognizable perhaps or whatever um second day in mike gordon picked me up hitchhiking <laughs> took me to burlington vermont found me a place to stay that night talked about that you know he had this band that was playing at nectars you know and yep. had this dream and you know, had a great talk and went on about my business thinking okay well that'll be the last i heard of this guy and but he always kept in touch with me and i i've watched them grow you know first time i saw him play at, a, at this place called the mayan theater in la a probably 500 seat space next thing they're opening for santana next thing they're doing their own thing right so that's that's sort of how that all came about they had this friend of theirs that was a real prankster that was always pranking them he was deathly afraid of malachi that was like <laughs> the thing. so they had been trying for years to get me to do a prank but it was just never the right like it was just never the right situation so finally they came up with a a pretty good scenario. It was in Vegas. So it wasn't far from LA. They had this penthouse. They were going to throw this big party, get him high on some shrimps, take him out gambling, come back. It's all dark. Children of the corn's playing. They watch. And then, and so that's what happened. They bring him back and they got the girls in the background singing the theme. Ah. <laughs> and, and one by one, the bandmates peel off Trey being the last one. Trey peels off. He meets me in the master bedroom. I put on his jacket. So it's an easy transition. I come and I sit down right next to the guy while he's watching the movie. He turns, his eyes just go, he's like, hey. And he gets up like really slow and walks out of the room. They were hoping for a big scream or something, which I can understand, but I could see how terrified he was. And he went in this room. I said, he was scared shitless. They go in to talk to him and the guy can literally not utter a syllable for 45 minutes. He's like, so at that point they realized they really got him good and uh he was a great sport about it the next day because again he's a prankster right. and it was the ultimate prank um but at that point i was in you know as good a gracious as i was ever going to be with the band and they were like you know they were like what do you want i'm like let me come up and play a song with you guys so i got to go play some percussion with larry and les from primus on guitar and bass as well in front of eight thousand people in vegas and uh not an experience i'll ever forget awesome favorite fish song oh shoot that's that's kind of put me on the spot uh and i'm terrible with titles of songs i'm really terrible with titles same. Of songs. yeah i'm the same way so, um but i mean i've seen them you know i've seen them play a number of times uh, and and uh, it's it's interesting to it's interesting to see them from uh being in the crowd you're just with everybody yeah. you know going at and being backstage and watching them mesmerize the crowd because it's you you see it from the, right. from the stage experience is very different than seeing it from the from the the, uh, the other experience but uh uh 
you know, what a, you know, what a, what a great band. And the, and the story I tell people that people maybe, maybe not know about fish and I don't know the guy's name, but the, when I first met Mike, he went, he went, went to pick up his bass app at the college there. Now at the college, there was this professor who was a big time, uh, you know, uh, it, it improv and training people in improv so much so that this guy I know named Martin Gigi, who's the band leader for Gibbons from ZZ Top, but I also did a movie with called Benny Bliss and the Disciples of Greatness. He directed, that I wrote four songs on. He was also trained by him, but not just to put it in perspective, his father was the conductor of the Burlington and Vermont band, Burlington Vermont Orchestra. And this is who the, he had him study with. And this guy can play anything you throw at him. He can handle it because that's how well they're trained. It was, that's how that improv culture in Burlington, Vermont was born. It was from this professor who trained these guys so beautifully that they can just wail, you know? Nice. I didn't know that. I didn't know that about yeah. that professor. I was always wondering where that came from. So, yeah, so that's why I told the story because you awesome. know, that's, it's not one a lot of people know, but I, I don't know the professor's name, but he really should get, should get a lot of credit because he, he, he really, you know, the jam band there was a whole fish was not the only jam band in burlington it's like it's a thing yeah. you know they were just the one that broke big yeah there was a lot in that northeast region during the early 90s it was it was an incredible place at the time but thanks for yeah. sharing that with us man sure hey quick question from somebody in the chat uh julian keith uh wants to know uh, who is the most fun to work with on the burb set on the burb set who was the most fun for me, it would have to be Bruce Stern. Um, yeah. Number one, because he did a lot of in, little improv things and weird things that, that were interesting. But number two, uh, he really took a liking to what I was doing and was really encouraging. I mean, really, really encouraging and gave me great career advice and things like that. So, uh, you know, I'm a, I was already a, a Bruce Stern fan. I just became a bigger fan after that. And recently I got to do a movie with him called Hellblazer that I don't know what's coming when it's coming out, a little, little uh, indie horror movie movie but i was so glad to get to see him again and thank him for how you know how how much of a, a positive force he was for me on that movie and a couple quick ones uh if you got a couple minutes uh yeah, sure. somebody wants to know how it was working with rob zombie on halloween so what i always say about rob so i knew a guy who had worked with him before um as a first ad and he gave me a really good heads up he's like hey look you know just be don't don't be ready like for you know improv or anything don't worry don't think you're just going to do lines on this or whatever and that was a great heads up because that's exactly what happened we ended up shooting another day or so because he basically he's looking for the truth so like you do the scene and if it's not working for him he keeps working until he finds things he likes and if that means now we did this we got to add something else to make that work he'll do that you know and um I like that about him. And as an actor, it's a, it's a freeing and a good feeling to know you're trying, you're, you're going to take the time to get it right. And it was, you know, obviously a gnarly rape scene. And uh, funny enough, when my kid was in high school, you know, none of his friends knew anything you know, that they'd ever done before, but they all saw that. You know? <laughs> of course. And they'd all be like, Oh, you're bad. You're so dirty. You know? <laughs> and, uh, but uh, it was funny is, you know, normally everybody hangs out at the monitor when they're filming. That's what everybody does. They crowd around the monitor. They want to see what's going on. Right. Well, when I come, when we come off the set to see Rob, there'd literally be nobody but him at the monitor. And he'd be going, this is really disturbing. This is really disturbing. <laughs> like it was not anything anybody wanted to watch. And they ended right. up getting cut out of the, uh, the, uh, the first version, the theatrical version, because when they did the, 
the uh, you know the, the screeners they found out that women didn't like the rape scene, which I could have they didn't have to spend a million dollars. I could have told yeah. them that. Right. But uh, uh, but it did make the director's cut. So it's it's if you know you want to see that wonderful scene between me and Lou Temple raping a girl, that that's 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 the that's the one for you. Well then, this is a <laughs> this is a good segue. <laughs> Aaron size I'm probably gonna butcher your name, man. Sizemeyer, I think it's Aaron Sizemeyer. He said, uh, "Did you come in my burrito?" There you go. Now, there's <laughs> another example, yeah, you know, of a uh, uh, always sunny in Philadelphia. A, you do you do sitcoms; they're so tight. You may do uh, you may get stuff to get cut out. Some things did because it's such a you know 22 minutes or whatever. Yeah, but had no idea that that line would, you know, one line, you know, I think that's the only line I had uh, is, is such a well-known and quoted line. And my son was a fan <laughs> of that show. And I remember when he saw it, he literally fell to the floor laughing when I said that line, literally fell to the floor. He just couldn't get over himself. So that's, you know, you can make your son laugh. That's good. But yeah, it's amazing that one line in, you know, a good show that's been on forever, people will quote. And uh, it happens to be conventions and things like that, too. So, Was it, so no did idea anybody walk up to you in the street and ask you? Oh, uh, it's one? happened. It's happened, yeah. <laughs> well, dude, you've been awesome. Uh, thank you for doing the song. That was fantastic. Yeah. Please come back anytime. And uh, before you get out of here, just tell people where they can find you online, where they can find your bands and links and all that stuff, and we'll let you get out of here. Yeah, so Ripple Street and myself, like I said, you can find us Spotify is the best way to find us. Uh, unless you know you want iTunes or like that, but uh, me, just you know, my name on Facebook, you'll be able to tell which one's me because I have all the stuff up that's like current and real, and you'll be able to tell the difference. And then I just have a you know an Instagram, same thing. You know, uh, just look look my name up, you'll find me. Um, and I just want to plug a couple other projects because I have a Go couple other things coming out. One is a indie. A movie called River that's coming out July 13th, and I have a nice role in that character named Dr. Michael Glenn, and it's it's got sci-fi undertones. It's very much an indie film, not like a lot of CGI or something. Very different. Uh, I play a psychologist, a shrink, very different role. Um, and then I have another movie called Charming the Hearts of Men that's coming out August 13th, and that's a movie set in the 50s that has to do with civil rights and stuff, and it's a very very uh, cool project. I'm glad to hear it's, it's coming out. Cause that's also been a couple of years. I was like, when's this thing going to come out? So those are the ones to look at. Oh, and a, a horror movie I did called await the dawn just came out on Amazon prime this week, which was, was a surprise to all of us. So all of a sudden it's like a floodgate of all these projects I've done the last few years are all of a sudden all starting to come out. Is that all because of COVID? I just have to assume that's why. I mean, I didn't, you know, no one really kept me informed. And then all of us, and Gravitas Ventures picked up the the Queen Bees River and uh, and Charming the Hearts of Men. So God bless them for picking up these films. So sweet. Yeah, I was actually in the mood for a horror tonight, so I wrote down. I wrote that down. I'm gonna watch that. It's on Amazon right now. Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. Oh, there's if you like horror, there's there's a trailer you can see of a movie. I mean, I don't know the release date yet though. Called The Bleeding Dark, and it's it's very heavy. It's very much a drama. Other than when it goes into the kills, all of a sudden it's like '80s horror, you know. Nice. So it'd be interesting to see how that bridges together. Very emotionally intense uh, role for me. Um, so uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how that blends together. Awesome. I'll look out for that too. But I'll watch the other one tonight. Sweet. I got that on the docket now. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. Have a great night. Stay cool. And, uh, dude, please come back. We'll, Sounds uh, good. We'll get you back on here. All right. You guys take care. Huh? All right. Take care, Courtney. Thanks Thank a you. Lot, Courtney. 
All right, Duelers. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to end this episode right here. But don't worry, you can always go back on our webpage, DuelingDecades.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, on Spotify, everywhere podcasts are available. And you can watch our show now on Pod TV and on YouTube. So make sure you subscribe and check those out as well. So until next time, Duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. See ya. Podcast New York. Podcast New York. Be heard. Be heard.